This morning, though, we are in Matthew chapter 9, so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles there. We're going to be in the first eight verses of chapter 9 as we continue our journey through Matthew's gospel, a series we're calling King and Kingdom. So I'm going to ask us, if you're willing and able, to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Father, a lot of us, all of us, we bring something in here this morning, a burden, a care, a need, um, a conflict, something going on in our body, something going on in our relationships, something going on in our own soul. And Lord, we're, we're thankful that you see those needs, you want to meet those, and you do. But Lord, you're reminding us this morning that we have an even deeper need, an even more profound need than these things. And that's the need to be forgiven. And so, Father, write this text across the, the landscape of our hearts this morning in a way that particularly cares for your people this morning. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. Here in this portion of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been doing amazing things, healings, exorcisms, making bodies whole. And here we see him in chapter 9 sort of zigzagging across the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know the Sea of Galilee is not really a sea. It's a, it's a big lake, and the Lake Jackson of Galilee, or something like that, right? And there on the eastern shore... And Jesus was doing miracles there in Gentile territory, but now it says they've returned to the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee into Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base. He's going back to his home territory for this next miracle. Now, if you've been with us in this study, one of the things that we've pointed out over and over again is that Jesus is not healing, doing supernatural things just for the sake of doing them, or just for the sake of doing good things or meeting people's needs, although he, of course, is absolutely doing that. He's been doing them, one, as a demonstration that his kingdom is here, that this broken world is being invaded by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we, and we see this new kingdom, this new gospel breaking through with these supernatural works. But even at that, Matthew has an even more specific purpose 
in showing us these miracles. And Jesus has a more specific purpose in, show, in doing these miracles. And that's to show us that he is king. That he is Lord. That in a postmodern context, it's not simply enough to, to say that we have a king or a Lord or a authority. But in fact, that Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our authority. And that's going to be particularly important this morning because we're going to find out that Jesus has the authority in him and him alone to do the one thing that we need most. To do the one thing that none of us can do for ourselves. And that is to receive the forgiveness of God for our sins. So the title of this sermon this morning is simply this, Are Your Sins Forgiven? And to help us wrestle with that question, there's going to be three groups of people that we're going to look at this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about the desperation of the paralytic. Secondly, the hardness of the leaders. And finally, the curiosity of the people. All right, so let's look first at the desperation of the paralytic. Look at verse 2. It says, some people brought to him a paralytic. Now, we're told in Mark and Luke's account of this story that there were actually four friends. And these four friends went on a, on a road trip, right? So think about your crew in college that you went around with, that that you road tripped with. College is just an excuse to do things that other times in your life would get you arrested, right? And so here they are, they, 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 they pack up for this road trip, but they have something much more serious and intentional in mind. This is a man who was paralyzed. And we need to th just think about that for a second and sit in that. We don't know if he was a paraplegic, a quadriplegic, Maybe he had a coma, he was incapacitated in some way. But, but these are men who were in a desperate place to get help for their friend. This was very serious, life-altering. In fact, in Luke and Mark's account of this same story, this is the famous story where the men go up to the roof of the house and cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. Matthew doesn't include that part of the story, uh, not because it's not important, but that's not his focus. The whole idea here is that this is a man in profound need. And for those of you who have cared for people in profound need, where there is acute need, chronic need, ongoing need, you, you, you understand the nature of this. But here's something that distinguishes this miracle from all the others that Jesus has done thus far. We, what we find here in this particular story is that not only does Jesus heal this paralytic, he gets up and walks, he does do that, absolutely. But Jesus doesn't just do a physical healing, he does a spiritual healing. This is the, this is the time where we see one of the few times in the Gospels where Jesus tells this man whom he has healed that in fact his sins are forgiven. Now, the reason this is significant is that we know just because Jesus heals someone physically in the Gospels does not automatically mean they're healed spiritually. It doesn't automatically mean their sins are forgiven. So, for example, in John chapter 5, remember Jesus heals a paralytic there. 
at the pool of Bethesda. And apparently the man sort of missed the whole point of the physical healing, right, which was to show who Jesus was and his need for forgiveness. He has sort of forgotten that so much so that Jesus had to track him down later in the day and said, hey, I'm the guy who healed you. Remember, stop sinning, right? Repent. And, and one thing, you don't want to have Jesus track you down twice in one day, right? And this is what's happened because he had missed the, the, whole, the whole point. So, so why is Jesus doing this now? What, what distinguishes this man? What distinguishes this situation? Now, one of the things that we see here is that if you look down in verse 4, where it says that Jesus knew the hearts of the religious leaders, um, he knew that their hearts were hardened, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But apparently, Jesus perceives the opposite of this man. In other words, there was something going on in the heart of this man who knew that he was not just broken physically, but he was broken spiritually. See, oftentimes, and, and you again, you, you put yourself in this situation, oftentimes it's not just the actual thing that's happened in our life that discourages us or brings us to a place of hopelessness. Now, now whether that's a, a cancer diagnosis or a loss of a job or a death of a loved one or a breakup of a marriage or the rebellion of a child, all those are, are difficult things, devastating things. But oftentimes what happens in those situations is that we're not just sort of crushed under the weight of those things in themselves, but it also like interposes this narrative on our life. It becomes a grid in which we look at and experience everything. It, it, it comes to represent something, and it's something very deep and fundamental and profound. And whether we voice it in this way or not, it comes out as, God, are you still for me? God, I, I, I'm, I'm watching this cancer eat my body. I'm watching my marriage fall apart. I'm watching the passing away of a loved one or of a, of a dream. And that's hard enough, God, but God, I need to know, are, are you still with me? Do you still love me? Are, are you on my side? Do I, have a, do I have a future? Is there hope? And you get the sense that this is what is going on in the heart of, his, of this man. And Jesus sees right into it. His physical desperation was just a symptom of his spiritual desperation. And Jesus knows this. And he looks into his soul, and I want you to notice what he says. Look back at the text in verse 2. He says, take heart, my son. Now, there's a lot that's wrapped up in that phrase. And remember, Jesus is speaking this to this man before he heals him. That word, take heart, it means something like be comforted. To to take great hope in. This is not have a great day or some sort of version of our Christianese. It's every, everything's going to be fine. That's, that's, the, that's not the essence of it. There's something deeper, more profound. Jesus is, is speaking to a, a portion of this man's soul where he's saying, take heart, have hope, and he calls him what? Son. 
And this is something that's unique also in this passage. It's, a, it's not just a term of endearment, but it's a, it's a term of relationship, of family, of closeness, of intimacy, of care. You know, it's interesting, a lot of us have the name that's on our birth certificate, and then we have another name that we're hoping no one knows what it really was and what people called us growing up. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you act like you don't know what I mean. You know what I mean. I have one of those too, and if you come tonight and see my office, I'll tell you in the confines of my office what that name was for me, all right? And that's the sense, this is something deeply personal. And Jesus says these amazing, profound words, the words he could never say for himself, the man, or we could say for ourselves, but he tells him, son, take heart, your sins are forgiven. All before he heals him physically. And I think that's important. There's, there's an important sequence in order here. Remember, your greatest need and my greatest need is not necessarily, or it is not actually, all the problems we have in this life that are sort of unresolved. All the things that if, if I said, hey, if, if you had a magic wand and you could take it and, and sort of sprinkle pixie, pixie dust or incantation, whatever, what would be different about your life? And all of us, let's be honest, have a list. We, we, we have a, an inventory of things that we would hope were different. But I wonder how many of us would say, Pastor, I just want the assurance and the knowledge that my sins are forgiven. That things aren't just fixed horizontally in my life, but that my soul is well with God. See, our greatest problem is not the horizontal, although God cares about those. And we should be engaged on those and serving others in those. Our biggest problem is vertical. And as we've seen in the past last decade or two, we've had a resurgence of what we would call social justice or biblical justice. And there are causes on the right and the left and everything in between that we are animated about. And let me just say, by the way, the scripture tells us to do so whether it's racism or life in the womb or poverty or homelessness, all of those don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is at the end of the day, our most vital pressing need is to know, are your sins forgiven? Parents, you have a lot of hopes and dreams for your kids. There's a lot you hope for them in terms of their schooling, their education, who they're going to marry. And of course, don't forget grandkids, of course. There's there, there so much wrapped into your investment in them. But have you, or how often do you remember their greatest need is to have their sins forgiven? As much as God calls us to invest ourselves in remedying and pushing back the darkness of this world, ushering in his kingdom, which we are called to do and must do. Let's never do it in isolation. Never do it where it's bifurcated from the most pressing need that every person in the history of mankind has faced and that you and I face is 
God counting our sin against you? Is God counting my sin against me? There is no more pressing question than we can ask of ourselves and from one another and from those that we are seeking to help and minister to. Don't be deceived. That is our greatest need. And this is what we learn from the desperation of the paralytic. What do we learn, secondly, from the hardness of the leaders? Look, look back at the text. And as one of my mentors always used to say, those blasted Pharisees, right? So, so look at verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now that word blaspheming, it's a strong word. It means to revile, to speak evil of. And in this particular theological sense, it means to revile or to speak evil of God. To make an accusation of God, to, to move God off the throne, to take glory from him, to say something that's contrary to his nature. Guys, that's the most serious charge any Jew could, could lodge against another Jew. But that's not just what the Pharisees are accusing him of, right? Jesus is not just defaming God and putting an idol in its place like we do. Like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to blaspheme God by, by glorifying sex or glorifying money or glorifying my career or glorifying my vocation. That, that's not, that is blasphemy. But this, this is double secret super probation blasphemy, Right? This is not only dethroning God, but saying, I'm putting myself on the throne. That's their charge. And it's an understandable charge because everyone knows, every Jew knows, only one person can forgive sin between God and that person, and that is God. Every Jew knew this. For example, Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Only God can do that between a person and God. Now, please understand, we can, should, have to forgive each other horizontally for our sins. There's all sorts of scripture passages. We're going to get, get to Matthew 18, where it talks about going and reconciling and forgiving one another and our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the only person who can forgive sin against God, make no mistake, is God. A priest can't do it. I can't do it. The church can't do it. It doesn't mean that we can't give one another assurance of forgiveness. Oh, yes, if you profess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. We can absolutely assure that. But make no mistake, there is no mediator between God and man except whom? Jesus Christ. So saying all that, though, aren't the Pharisees at least justified in raising this issue? I mean, they're theologically correct. And this, and this, is, and this is a reminder that theological precision, three, theological acumen, is in itself not a substitute for saving faith. Because sometimes, and you know this in your own life, where, where you can be so right about something, you're so wrong. 
And, and, and if husbands, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your wife. She will most certainly fill you in, right? Like, like you can take the whole scope of your, whatever you're arguing about, and you can focus, men, on that 1% of variance of the argument and just feel so good about yourself because you established yourself righteously. But you've missed the whole thing, right? You've missed the whole essence of it. And this seems to be what's happened with these leaders, Two things, I think, are going on when Jesus says, why do you speak evil in your hearts? Now, he doesn't just simply say, you know, that's a good question. Let me tell you about forgiveness of sins. He doesn't say, let me, um, let, 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 let me explore this with you. No, no, no. He just says, why do you speak evil in your hearts? And I think there are two things going on, okay? Number one, let me say this. I think he's pointing out to the leaders how obtuse they are to the situation of this paralytic. That they are seemingly completely detached, completely obtuse, completely non-plugged in to the reality of the human suffering they see right in front of them. Rather... They are, they are there to make sure everybody is dotting their theological I's and crossing their theological T's. They're, like, they're kind of like the original judges on American Idol. Remember, is anybody still watching this? Okay, so 20 years ago. Now, the judges on American Idol are now are way too nice. Let's be honest. They're way too nice, way too encouraging, way too positive. American Idol was much better when the British guy you know, would say that was rubbish or you belong on a cruise ship or whatever. No, 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 pun, no, no, no offense, okay? But it came across as so crass and detached and judgmental. That's, that's the leaders. They are, they're supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. They're supposed to care for and love the people of God. And here is this profound need that they seemingly are impervious to all for the sake of wanting to score religious points. The needs of the people receive this, be damned. That, that, and Jesus looks into their heart. He knows their heart. And he says, this is evil. But I think there's a second thing, obviously. And it's the main thing. Is that when Jesus refers to them as evil, and by the way, when it says, why do you think evil or we'll go back to verse 4, look at verse 4, knowing their thoughts. Sometimes we can get the idea, well, Jesus is up there teaching and speaking, and there is some Pharisees, and they're all like mummering among themselves, and he sort of can kind of get the vibe of what's going on, and he calls them out. That's not what's happening. First of all, where did the Pharisees and scribes sit whenever there was a teaching? Front row. And no one's in the front row over here. I don't know what that means, right? But front row. Jesus literally knows their thoughts. He reads their minds. And he thus speaks into their hearts. He says that they're evil because, let, let, let's remember, this is not their first foray into Jesus' ministry. See, Jesus is our, this is his year of popularity. He's been doing amazing supernatural things up and down the, the seaboard of the Sea of Galilee. And the word has gone out. 
Jesus is doing amazing things, incredible things, powerful things, supernatural things. It tells us in Mark and Luke there, were, there was actually a delegation of people from Jerusalem who went up, right? They were coming to check out what was going on. Rabbis were bringing their students from the synagogue. Everybody was coming out because they wanted to catch Jesus. They, 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 they wanted to catch him and they, they, they wanted to lodge an accusation against him. And the reason Jesus says there were evil in their hearts is that they weren't interested in knowing the things of God. They were more interested in destroying a man because they could not tolerate what he was teaching. Word was out in their refusal to acknowledge even what had happened up to this point showed the corruption of their hearts. And Jesus, in knowing all of this, uses a very simple example to expose their hearts. Look at, look at verse 5. Jesus says, For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. Now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't say which is easier to do. He says, which is easier to say. Saying and doing. So, so for some reason, a bunch of you have started playing pickleball, which I'm not sure why, okay? And you've been hurting yourself in the process. I, I know who you are. And so I thought, I'm going to give this a, a try. How, 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 hard this, how hard could this be, right? So my son Jack and I went out to, and I'm a tennis player, right? So this has got to come naturally to a tennis player, of course. So 45 minutes later, and when my soul had been crushed, right, beyond recognition, I was reminded once again there's a big difference in saying and doing, okay? Jesus is using the same illustration. He says, which is easier to say? And here's his point. It's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven. Now, why is that easier to say? Well, because you can't really verify that immediately, right? But if I say I've got the power to heal, or I've got the power to win this game, or I've got the power to do this miraculous thing, and I say, let it be so, and it's not so, it doesn't happen, you know I'm a fraud. And Jesus is saying, you guys already have seen the works of God. You guys already know that these things are supernatural. You already know that only God can do the kinds of things that I have been doing, but yet you still will not believe. And in that moment, he exposes something that, that's very important for us to understand about unbelief, something that goes way below the surface of knowledge or apologetics or intellect. See, a lot of times we think the biggest obstacle to people's unbelief is knowledge or making the right intellectual argument. Or if I could just persuade them to see life and reality in a certain way, that then someone would believe, then someone would recognize. Guys, that's not, it's just not true. First of all, Jesus' argument is well-reasoned. It is well-spoken. And by the way, you know, he does actually heal this person. And there is no evidence at all 
through the rest of Matthew that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, responded any different. In fact, the more he healed, the angrier they got. And we may say, well, Pastor Paul, what's, what's the problem here? Please hear this. It was not a problem of intellect. It wasn't a problem of the mind. It was a problem of the heart. They didn't believe because their hearts wouldn't let them. Let me explain that. For them to believe would have meant paying a price that was very high. It would have meant saying, oh, we've been wrong. Oh, we've been hypocritical. Oh, we've been, we, we've been wolves, not shepherds. It would have meant humbling themselves. It would have been humility. It would have meant going low. This was, quite honestly, a cost that was way too high. The risk was way too great. The problem is not that they didn't know who Jesus was. The problem was precisely they did know. The claims were so all-encompassing upon their lives, it would have made a claim in their materialism, in their power, in their relationships. And guess what? They couldn't go there. They wouldn't go there. So they didn't. As unbelief is a powerful thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's a willful blindedness that says that is the, the, the cost of faith, the cost of discipleship is way too much. We need to remember this. Paul, on the road to Damascus, tells us in one of his accounts that when Jesus appeared to him, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then this interesting phrase, why are you kicking against the goads? And that seems to be a reference that even in the Paul and in, in all the midst of his zeal, that there was something that was impinging upon his conscience. There was something that he knew wasn't quite right. And I think Paul is just describing his own unregenerate state and ours in 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to what he says. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is so important to remember, particularly when we're at a point in the, in the history of the church where we are grappling with this issue of deconstruction. What is deconstruction? It seems to be in a, in a broad sense, describing the process by which those who at one time profess faith, those who at one time were part of the church, have sort of deconstructed, they've fallen away. And there's two things we, we need to note about this. And by the way, that phenomenon is real, it's important, we need to understand it. But number one, this is not new. This is not new. Apostasy has been happening since the beginning of the church history. It's littered all throughout the scriptures, number one. But number two, and this is, this is the point I want to drill, drill down on. A lot of times we look at deconstruction and we make a wrong conclusion. We want to say, well, the reason that they're so turned off, they're so burned, is because of the church. It's because of hypocrisy. It's because of other Christians. It's because of, of this injustice or this thing or that thing. 
And let me just say, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. We need to understand those things and address those concerns and repent as a church when as necessary to change. All that is totally true. But that is not why people don't believe. That's simply an easy repository to park doubt and skepticism. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ makes a claim on the heart and some will walk away just like the rich young man, that claim is too high. What, what, was, what was the response in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man, Jesus, just let me go back and warn my, my family members. And what does Jesus says? Even if you rise from the dead, they're not going to believe. They have Moses and the prophets. There's only one way ultimately to see, and Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We need to pray like crazy. We need to say, God, I know this person has latched onto these things. I know this person is falling away and it's for this reason and that reason. Lord, penetrate their hearts. Let my encouragement to you as we're walking with people in the middle of that process is to say, I, I, I get it, I get it, I get it. I know there's this, I know there's that, but what about you? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? At the end of the day, when it's just you and Jesus, where is your heart towards him? Last group of people and then we're done. This is brief, but there is the curiosity of the people. Look at verse 8. Man's been healed. It says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, on one hand, can we not say, at least compared to the Pharisees, this is a very encouraging response. And, and, and we can understand this a little better by looking at these two words. Okay, number one, the word fear or afraid, and the word glorify. To, be, to, to fear in this context means to be in awe, to revere, to be astounded, and that's what they were. They, they looked at this, they, they, were, they could not explain it in human terms. And then it says they glorified God, meaning they weren't stupid, they, they understood only God could do something like this. They were praising God and glorifying God. It's kind of like when we um, witnessed our two baptisms this morning. That it is possible to be in awe of that and to say, praise God for it. That's supernatural. That's something only God can do. To be excited, to praise God. But that does not necessarily equal biblical faith. See, we see this fickle relationship with the crowds and Jesus all throughout the gospel. And one thing I want you to note that Jesus does not say to the crowd that he said to the man. What is that one thing? Your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know if their sins were forgiven or not. We, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't know, but what we do know is that what we can say at this point is that as important as awe and fear of God and glorifying God, as important as those are, 
And as much as those are prerequisites of faith, they're not a substitute for faith itself. The questions still remain for them as it does for us as we come to enter this text. What about you? What about me? Are your sins forgiven? And Jesus makes promise after promise after promise in his word. Those who trust me, those who come to me, those who place their faith in me, those who submit their lives to me, I will in no wise cast out. That is the person whose sins are forgiven. But apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. Jesus, what does it say? Saw their faith. Not their enthusiasm, not their good intentions. He saw their faith. One last word and we're done. You know, the Pharisees deserve credit for one thing here. They realized there was no squishy middle. See, for them, it was all or nothing. Either this guy is a complete fraud, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, he's lost his mind, or he is, in fact, the son of God. We're going to go with the former simply because the cost is too high. We don't know what the crowds will do. And that's why it's left open-ended. Will they entrust themselves to a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ? Will you? Will I? Will we follow the Lord? Because we end the service every week by coming to the table because this is a chance for those of us who say, yes, I am all in for Jesus. It's to renew our commitments. It's to remind us of what we've said that Jesus has done for us and to to receive that assurance that my sins are forgiven. But it's also an opportunity, regardless of who you are, where you've been, the decisions you've made, that just like the paralytic, you can show up one day, one hour like this and be in profound physical need and Jesus change your heart like that and tell you your sins are forgiven that is open and available to all of us through Jesus Christ I'm going to ask you just to take a moment or two to silently prepare your hearts to come to the table and I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve